This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. A lot of news comes out of Washington, D.C. at all times, and this year looks to offer even more. But we're visiting the Mid-Atlantic Belt for its gardening news. We're joined in this by Kathy Jentz, founder and editor of Washington Gardener, a gardening magazine and information hub for gardeners of D.C., Maryland, Virginia, and Pennsylvania. I'll be speaking at a symposium on women, horticulture, and diversity at the Smithsonian Institute for Smithsonian Gardens on March 18, 2020, as part of my national speaking tour around The Earth in Her Hands, 75 Extraordinary Women Working in the World of Plants. I thought I'd like to get the lay of that gardening place and its avid gardeners in advance. And when it comes to gardening and horticulture, it's always best to consult the people who know best, the gardeners of the actual place. Kathy Jentz, the Washington gardener herself, joins us from her home and garden in D.C. to share more. Welcome, Kathy. Great to be here. Tell me a little bit about your gardening practice as it exists today, uh, what what you do both personally and professionally as a gardener, Kathy. Sure. So my garden is a urban corner right outside of Washington, D.C. on the border with Silver Spring, Maryland, and it's heavily treed, five huge oak mostly red oaks, a couple white oaks. Um, and so I have a lot of dry shade where those oaks are, you know, sucking the moisture out <laughs> from everything else. <laughs> and then a very, very sunny corner exposed to the entire world. Um, I'm next to a community college and down the street from a subway stop. So I get a, I got a lot of um, interaction with passersby. Mm. And I've, you know, maxed out all the beds, no more turf grass and lots and lots of plantings. Um, diagonal from my house, uh, a community garden has started a couple years ago. Ooh. And, you know, that wasn't a coincidence. <laughs> it's no. diagonal from my house. Um <laughs> So I have a plot over there, and that's my full sun veggie gardening, some herbs there, some herbs back in my house in pots. Mm-hmm. So it's a funny lot. It's a pie wedge because okay. I'm the corner, right. literally a corner of two major state roads. So it's got a long pie wedge. I believe the total acreage, including the house footprint and driveway, is a third of an acre. Okay. And then your uh, allotment plot in the community garden, about how big is that? So it's 10 feet wide by 20 feet long. Nice. And so remind listeners what zone you are in and uh, maybe just a little bit about the general climate factors that you live with there. Sure, I'm zone 7B here in the Mid-Atlantic and surrounded by a little bit of 6 and 8 with, you know, outside our area. Mm-hmm. But in general, hot, humid summers, winter times we can get 1 to 2 inches of snow sometimes and then it disappears a day later. Mm-hmm. And then other winters you get um, socked in by, you know, the craziness of a 12 inch <laughs> snow and that might stick around for a week. 
But normally our winters are the freeze-thaw, freeze-thaw cycle that the rest of the Mid-Atlantic has. So you you describe your, your home garden, not the veg garden diagonally across the street, but the primary home garden space as being maxed out, no turf grass. What kinds of plantings do you tend toward, Kathy? Like, as visually as you can maybe, describe the kinds of plants you love to cultivate on these this the hot, sunny corner and then in that fabulous, sometimes challenging, but fabulous dry shade under those great oaks. My hot, sunny corner is maxed out with mostly herbs and I have like a large swath of lavender because it's kind of sloped down to the street there. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really the only place I can plant something like that. So I've tried mostly lavenders um, that are English origin. So Hidcote and Munstead seem to do best there. Mm-hmm. And then um, bordering that, I have some of the tall bearded iris, a bit of those directly in back of that some large lilac shrubs. One is a a pale, pale pink, which the name escapes me right now. And then uh, the other two behind that are your typical purple. I find that the pale pink blooms two weeks ahead of the purple. So I love that effect. Mm -hmm. Um, Then behind that, I have a fence line and a sunroom on that sunny corner. And I'd taken out a lot of real estate putting in that sunroom, uh, but that's currently acting as a catio, if you're familiar with that term. Yes, yes. So that is my two cats' um, favorite place in the house, um, spring through fall. It's it's unheated sunroom, so I can't use it you know, as a greenhouse over the winter, um, but it does push the seasons on both both ends. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. a little bit more that we can spend outside. And also it's, you know, a saving grace on summer evenings from all the mosquitoes. So you can feel outside and not be outside for that. Um, and then coming around the corner, I have a large crepe myrtle in the front bed, uh, Natchez, a large white one. And then that's where I have my mixed perennial borders, cottage gardens, and you'll barely be able to see where you can walk because um, I believe in um, a little bit of chaos in the garden, Um, maybe too much chaos for some people's tastes. But I'm also blessed being a garden writer and that I get sent a lot of sample plants Um, so I have one of those gardens where it's very onesie twosies. Um, so it's not what I would call a design garden. It's more an experimental garden. Nice. And then that gets a fair amount of part sun, I would call it on that corner on the front and then moving more towards the east, you're having the overshadow of oak trees and a weeping cherry. And then that's transitioning more to part shade plants like, hydrangeas, and um, I have a lot of epimediums and other ground covers I'm experimenting with under the oaks. So hellebores are doing great. Hardy geraniums like Biocova mm-hmm. is one of my favorite. Oh, it's a that, good one, yeah. Yeah, and I had thought, you know, that needs more sun, needs more, or at least a part sun. 
but it's actually running under some of the shrubs and doing very well and still blooming. So happy with that. So yeah, constantly experimenting with what ground covers will beat out um, some of the invasive ground covers like vinca and English ivy mm-hmm. and will stand up to um, dry shade and still look good. Yeah. Do you, so when you say dry shade, do you irrigate your garden areas there, Kathy? I don't. I hand water all my containers mm-hmm. and have several rain barrels. Um, this past spring and the spring before we had very long cool wet springs and I didn't even have to like dip into the rain barrel I think until maybe first week of May mid-May wow so that was great (laughs) yeah and you can rely on afternoon thunder showers and thunder Mm -hmm. showers on a on a pretty regular basis through the summer yeah we have odd cycles. And sometimes you'll get in that pocket. And we had that for the last three weeks where the thunderstorms go above the city and below the city. And (laughs) you can see the lightning and thunderstorms (laughs) all evening long. And then you watch the radar and then you, uh, you know, do your rain chants. And then (laughs) you're like, for sure, it's going to hit my garden. I'll go to bed without watering my pots. And then you wake up the next morning and the rain barrel is dry as dust. Right. And then other people in the next zip code over or literally on the other side of I-95, you know, where they're like, we had two inches last night. Yeah. 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 So take us back just a little bit Mm -hmm. in your life. Where were you born and raised what were the people and places and plants that grew you into somebody who would take up her entire urban lot to plant flowers and shrubs and trees? I was born in Germany at an army hospital in Nuremberg. Uh, My dad was stationed there during Vietnam. He was in a tank division of all things in Germany. uh, So my mom is German. And we came back over with him, uh, I think when I was two years old, but went back and visited my German grandparents outside of Bayreuth very frequently. So I would be spending usually like Easter break or some of the other breaks. um, And they had an allotment garden, um, which is in the European system where you have usually a 99 year lease on your allotment. And it's a very good sized allotment right outside the city where you have a little maybe cottage or work shed and patio space and a grill and then plenty of growing space and trees and grapevines and gooseberries and that sort of thing. And I just remember as a child, they had a large um, cistern right outside their garden shed and for some reason, I was definitely, I don't know why, obsessed with that cistern, like hanging out at the cistern. There was nothing floating in it. It was just water. <laughs> There's no water plants in it. But, you know, I think kids are, and human beings maybe in general, are attracted to water mm-hmm. always. Yeah. And, and then sprinkled throughout their garden were antique garden gnomes. And my 
younger brother and I would spend most of the time when the rest of the family was gardening. We were collecting the gnomes and, you know, making stories and rearranging things. <laughs> I love it. That's great. <laughs> so I definitely have a gnome collection now in my own garden. Um, a funny side story. I had a neighbor contact me uh, through our neighborhood listserv and she just posted I'm looking for a garden with gnomes. I have a little three-year-old who's obsessed with gnomes, a little boy. And I said, come on over. <laughs> they did a tour of the gnomes. Um, on my father's side of the family, they're Midwest farmers. Northwest Indiana is where that side of the family had settled, coming over from Germany in the late 1800s. Uh, so we would spend um, summers four to six weeks or so at my grandparents' farm, which was largely corn, but had a good-sized apple orchard and vegetable patch. And he would have us sitting at the edge of the garage, and we would be the ones when people came up and said, we would like three apples. We would walk in up from town, which was one of those one-stoplight towns with a IGA grocery store. So mm -hmm. he was supplying vegetables for that grocery store, but then anybody who would stop by and wanted a bag of green beans or six ears of corn, they could do that on their way. That's great. That is a very, that is a, a first of all, just a fabulous legacy of very different but rich garden cultures, right? Your your German grandparents and just that whole culture of a place that has abundant and interesting perennials and uh, it's just a part of everyday life in, in Europe. And then to have that strong kind of edible and town farmer connection in your Indiana family is like a perfect marriage to create you. Yeah, so vastly different yeah. at the you know at the time, but now that I look back, I was like, oh, well we were we were cutting herbs at both, we were preparing, you know, farm to table at both really. Right. And my German grandparents as many Germans do then and still spend most of their weekend in that allotment garden. You had your allotment neighbors that you would do a barbecue with or sit down with a meal out there and you were hardly back in your home apartment or home anytime on a Saturday and Sunday. Yeah, yeah. So you come over back to the U.S. Uh, with your family when you're about to. Where do you land? And talk, you know, walk us through your journey story from there to uh, becoming someone who would found a regional gardening magazine, Kathy. Well, as a Typical Army brat. We moved around a little bit. My brother was born in Fort Belvoir in Virginia. And then we were stationed at Fairbanks, Alaska for a couple of years. Um, I, of my horticultural memories of Alaska, I remember my birthday is June, early June. And we went blueberry picking and mushroom hunting in a, mm -hmm. one of the national parks. And then we were camping. And we were woken up at 2 a.m. by snow covering the tent <laughs> and <laughs> had to pack up and go into town and find a hotel because <laughs> we were all shivering. <laughs> and then, yeah, so my dad was uh, stationed back to Fort Belvoir. And then he left the Army and got a um, 
job and nuclear regulatory work and we settled down in the DC area so and went to University of Maryland and got a journalism degree and always loved writing always nosy <laughs> and, uh, um, and you know the kid that was always walking around the neighborhood striking up conversations with adults you know asking them how, what they did right. and what they, what they what the what they were reading and I had my own little um, fan newsletter that I started for Harrison Ford um, <laughs> as a middle that's, schooler. That's great. <laughs> that I distributed. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Kathy Jentz is an avid home gardener and professional garden communicator in the Mid-Atlantic Zone B. After years of gardening at home and working at publishing and communications as her chosen career, in 2005 she merged her two passions and launched The Washington Gardener, a regional gardening magazine covering all manner of ornamental, edible, ecological, and communal gardening for DC, Virginia, Maryland, and Pennsylvania. We'll be back for more with Kathy after a break. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer. Happy New Year again. In this segment of our conversation with Kathy Jentz, I was struck by several things. Her fully rounded love and engagement in gardening being at the heart of all of them. How she embraces all aspects of ornamental, edible, and ecological gardening. How she embraces and enjoys the realities of living on a busy urban corner with a community college and a subway stop right nearby. A community garden that she helped to found diagonally right across the way as well. She mentions the interactions she has with front garden passersby. How she works with her big oaks, not against the dry shade they create, but with them. She mentions her water barrels for harvesting rainwater and slowing stormwater runoff in big rain events. How she has a catio to keep her cats and her family on buggy summer evenings, happy and enjoying being outside, but not prey to cars and not predators to birds and other wildlife. For me, somehow, these details Kathy mentions in passing of working creatively and resourcefully with the place she's in all paint a picture of just how many small ways we as gardeners can and do improve the environments we're in. We improve the carbon footprint, the air quality and heat island effect of urban areas with the large trees and other plants we tend. We improve the watersheds we're part of by creating and caring for beautiful, permeable surfaces. We improve the community atmosphere of our streets for residents and visitors by just offering these sensual oases. I love this. So does the rest of the world. So thank you to every gardener out there and the many ways your passion ripples positivity out into the world. Now, back to our conversation with Kathy Jens. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. 
Kathy Jentz is a gardener and gardening journalist in Washington, D.C. After graduating from college with her journalism degree, she went to work managing communications such as newsletters and magazines for trade associations. In 2005, she brought her skills for publishing and communication together with her love of gardening and launched The Washington Gardener. As we come back, she shares her journey around how the two came together. At the same time, I was crazy garden bug and, you know, sucking up every piece of information that was about mid-Atlantic gardening out there Mm -hmm. and realizing there wasn't much. We have the USDA in our backyard. We have huge eastern shore growers of um, annuals and vegetables and shrubs that provide it for the rest of the area. But nobody was writing about it or reporting on it. So that's when I got the idea of putting those things together and starting Washington Gardener magazine. Wow. So what year was that? So that was our first issue was March 2005. So March 2005 was our first issue. I resigned um, from my last association job December 31st, 2004. And I was like, going to make the leap straight in because for a couple years I toyed with the idea, but nothing was happening. And then I realized this is a full time job and I was already working, you know, 60 hours a week Mm -hmm. at another job. And it just with gardening and everything else, it wasn't going to happen unless I devoted full time to it. Yeah. So you had a dream and you took that leap. That's fabulous. So when you first started uh, Washington Gardener, were you already in the garden you're in now? How long have you been in that home garden? Yeah, I purchased um, the house I'm in in 2001. Mm -hmm. I think it was the summer of 2001. Um, So I'd been there for about four years at that point. So it was really, it's been your test garden through this whole adventure. That's pretty great. Exactly. And so give people a description of the mission of Washington Gardener and, you know, certainly the current topic headings that you tend to focus on as being the ones you think are both really important for mid-Atlantic gardeners to get each month. And I think the... um, the most of interest at at a given time. And, and then if that has evolved over time, describe that evolution, because it's now going on 13 years old, 14 years old. And um, so I'm imagining there's been quite a few iterations and, uh, and a lot more engagement from your audience, which is, it's a big area. And not only do you have fantastic growers and the USDA, you are also in the center of some fantastic historic display gardens that are pretty unique. Yeah, we're so lucky with all the public gardens in the area. D.C. has an abundant amount, both public and private. But then right up the road, I have all the Philadelphia gardens. Mm -hmm. Um, And then North Carolina is not too far away. And, you know, Raleigh area and Research Triangle, not too shabby down there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Yep. So the magazine focus is hyper-local to the D.C. commuting area, which I generally okay. define as 
Gettysburg, Pennsylvania to Richmond, Virginia. Okay. Um, with a big circle around it. I do have a smattering of readership uh, all over the country. And because of our name, Washington Gardener, I have some Washington State in area <laughs> and Pacific North- Northwest subscribers. And I think that they, you know, initially subscribed just because they thought the name was Washington State, but they have stayed on. And I think it's because a lot we have a lot of overlap with the Pacific Northwest, um, similar growing zones, similar plant palette. The big difference being, of course, the hot and humid summers. Right, right. So I've always wanted our mission to be everything that grows in the area. So ornamentals and exotics included, not just natives. Um, and both ornamental gardening and edible gardening. So in the beginning, I definitely was much more focused on ornamental gardening. Um, And I didn't find the edible side as interesting myself, but I was like, oh, I'll include an edible column in each issue. Um, So I sourced a columnist from Green Spring Gardens in Annandale, Virginia. Mm-hmm. Um, Cindy Brown is her name, and she is, and she was, and still is, an incredible edible garden writer. And then about five years ago, she was poached, I say, by Smithsonian Gardens. <laughs> <laughs> so now our edible car- columnist is another wonderful writer, Elizabeth Olson, um, a Prince George's County master gardener. Then I have at the same time gotten the plot across the street in the community garden. And my interest in edible gardening has ratcheted up, I think, at the same time as my reader's interest. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've noticed, you know, giving a lot of talks, going to a lot of um, garden festivals and things where we would have a table or booth, uh, people would come up to me and at the questions, I would say, seven to eight years ago, started to turn a lot more to how do I get a community garden plot? Where do I get a plot? How do I get space to grow? And I would ask them what they wanted to grow, and it would be tomatoes. And (laughs) they were all very much focused on organic, grow your own, and fresh from the garden. So that I feel like the foodie trends and the interest in good quality food, you know, dovetailed obviously with growing your own and having total control of what varieties of tomatoes you're growing and how they're grown um, without chemicals and, of course, straight from the garden plot into your mouth. Yeah. And it's interesting because I would say that this 14 years that you've been publishing Washington Gardener has seen some really interesting trends and cycles in the gardening world that are, of course, a subset of a reflection of what is happening in our culture as a whole, uh, but also a a very clear um, kind of sine wave of what's happening in the gardening world. And I'm, you know, thinking here of uh, water usage, of chemical usage, of how we source our food, of our need to be outside of increasing awareness of what nature deficit disorder does to us in urban areas. And then, you know, just in the last five to 
seven, five to seven years, a really strong emphasis in the gardening community on not just growing for ourselves, but growing for our communities and for whatever wildlife we can help support, especially in urban areas. Exactly. I think pollinator gardening in particular has really taken off. People are that monarch um, uh, message and the honeybee at the same time the monarch plight and the honeybee plight has really um, permeated down to non-gardeners, down to people who have no idea the difference between um, a daisy and a hosta. Mm -hmm. They know about the honeybee. They, they know that the monarchs are imperiled. So that's wonderful to see, you know, sad to see a plight, but wonderful that the focus is getting on that. And, um, Everybody in our area is not is conscious of water use because of the Chesapeake Bay, and that message is getting out there very well. That you know whatever you're using in your ground is going into the bay, so that's their more interest in the chemical and water use, and less on water wise gardening here, of course. But there's always the call or yearn for low maintenance, no maintenance. Mm -hmm. um, so less water hungry plants are always at the top of people's mind. If you can have a bed that you never need to touch, even in say a summer six week drought and still look decent. More concern here is in moving storm water consciously. So when you do have a three inch rain, shooting it off into a rain garden or a catchment garden, and then it's slowly seeping into the ground level rather than shunting it down a concrete driveway straight onto a blacktop street and then into a local stream valley where we go into the Potomac and the Chesapeake. So that's the emphasis now is green roofs, um, planting everything but turf grass or concrete and <laughs> holding the water on site as long as you can and then it's, it's slowly being released. I'm Jennifer Jewell and this is Cultivating Place. Kathy Jens is the founder and editor of Washington Gardener, a gardening magazine and horticultural information hub for Washington, D.C., Virginia, Maryland, and Pennsylvania. We'll be right back for more with Kathy and her garden life and garden writing journey after the break. Okay, so thinking out loud this week, I'm sure you noted my surprise at the twist in Joe Joe's story last week. His stroke at such an early age, followed by the nearly mystical role that plants themselves, as well as the powerful mental symbolism that they held for him, played in his healing and recovery. Toward the end of our conversation with Kathy today, she too notes the powerful role that plants play for her in her densely urban environment, physically and through the chemical relationship we know we engage in with plants, the oxygen cycle dance we do together. 
our sympathetic nervous and lymphatic system's response to the scents and pheromones and colors of plants and plant communities as borne out in research around Xinyin Roku and forest bathing. But as Kathy implies, there's also some kind of vibrational call and response between us and this planet we live on and with and because of. Some vibration of our bare feet against her outer shell of living, breathing, vibrating soil and roots and interconnected organisms is real. We gardeners know this. At the very, very physical, tangible, cellular level of information gathering that happens with our bare hands, our bare feet, our wet, sometimes cold, sometimes sunburned noses, our happy hearts and brains out in the garden with our garden family. We know this vibration is ours, and it's good. It's good for us. It's good for our plant and animal kin. It's good for the planet. Enjoy it. Pass it on to others. Pay attention to it and value it. As we head into the future that is ours to grow, we as gardeners have powerful, positive impacts to make for the better, for us all. So I beg you, don't neglect this on your to-do list and resolution list this month and year and life. Wear your gardening passion proudly. It can help to save us all. Oh, and look forward to the first CP series of the year around this very topic, when in February we talk all about health and well-being and the garden. It's the Garden Heart Month for us, and I think you're going to like it. We have some serious garden vitamins coming your way. Now, back to our conversation with Kathy Jentz, founder and editor of The Washington Gardener, serving gardeners and going-to-be gardeners of the Mid-Atlantic since 2005. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back now with Kathy Jentz, founder and editor of Washington Gardener magazine, serving the D.C. area. Despite being in the center of a wealth of public gardens and horticultural research, Kathy realized there was a big gap in communicating all of that horticultural knowledge to home gardeners of the Mid-Atlantic. This was the catalyst for her founding of the magazine, because as we go on to discuss, when it comes to gardening information, the best of it is generally served fresh and local. I know we have felt it here strongly in the West, but I get this sense from uh, my gardening friends and family across the country that the the awareness, not just of gardeners, but of even people who are occasional gardeners or not even gardeners, has been raised significantly in this this last five to ten years, and I I find that a real sign of hope. I do as well. I'm and we're. We're lucky here in the D.C. area in that the education level is fairly high. You're surrounded by people with master's degrees, doctor's degrees, and they might be in something totally esoteric. It might be, you know, medieval poetry of just this (laughs) one little town of Spain. But they're intelligent people. And even if they don't know plants at all, um, if you explain to them, 
you know, you want to hold the storm water on site, you know, the wheels turn and they get it quickly. So everybody is looking for native plants mm-hmm. now. So there's a lot more interest in native plants because uh, slightly erroneously, in my opinion, the native plants are being um, marketed as as xeriscape plants or uh. water-wise plants. <laughs> and that is not the case for many of our native plants here in uh, the D.C. area in Maryland. So a lot of the native plants that you might see for sale are deep tap-rooted swamp plants. Right. Like Joe Pieweed. Right. And that needs a lot of water. That needs to sit in a low spot where water just collects. Yeah. So that would be great at the bottom, say, of a rain garden swale or swale garden, but that would not be something for your back border along your fence line. Mm-mm. Well, and this gets us right to the heart of, of one of the issues that I think you can speak to beautifully, and that is this idea of how when mainstream media tries to distill gardening down into little sound bites that can be picked up on the, you know, the AP wire and distributed across the country for a little blip in the newspaper without having to pay a garden writer or a local person who is a gardener to give you this information. You start getting this kind of miscommunication about what plants are good for pollinators, what plants are good for dry situations. And so then you get these just gross generalizations that drive, I think, people that are gardeners or, you know, professional garden writers for their career like you a little bit crazy because they've got it a little bit right. Like it's great to plant natives. And yes, Mm -hmm. the natives are adapted to our local soils, our local geology, hydrology, climate. And so they will use water more efficiently in their correct environments, but they need to be in their correct environment. And as you say, you know, and it's the same is true in California. Some of our showiest native plants are going to be our riparian corridor plants. So <laughs> they they need water. That's where they live. And this kind of shortcut to gardening, uh, a kind of paint by numbers, is it can be so frustrating and it gets me to the importance of garden writing, whether that's in print or it's digital. What are what are you seeing there in terms of your audience's hunger and need for your exact kind of information for your exact location, Kathy? Well, the D.C. area is an area of a lot of people who are coming from all over the country. Mm-hmm. So they're brought in either from politics or it could be the association world or just be, could be because they want to see the Chesapeake Bay. No. <laughs> so <laughs> when they're coming from all over the country, um, they're coming with their plant palette in mind, of course, and they're coming with their seasonal um, schedule that they're used to. So when somebody's coming up from Florida and they're trying to plant tomatoes in March, that's obviously not going to work. Or they're coming from um, the Midwest and they're walking down the street and they see all the crepe myrtles in bloom and they're like, wow, what's that? So (laughs) um, it's a great discovery, but there are a lot of people coming from outside the area who are craving to learn about the plants and the schedule here. And there's no big trick to it. 
there's very clear seasons here. And with Washington Gardener, we publish a monthly task and to-do list um, in every issue to help guide that, but also plant profiles that are very locally focused. So our profile of echinacea is not going to be the same profile as a garden writer who writes about echinacea in Minnesota. Mm -hmm. So that would be definitely different. And I would definitely recommend for those people who are in other regions to seek out their local garden writers, their local newspaper columnists, and um, podcasters or radio hosts, or they could be doing uh, local TV segments Mm -hmm. or speaking at their local public gardens. Um, I always flip in national gardening magazines right to the little author bio to read where they are from Mm. before I start reading the article. Um, And I recommend everybody do that no matter what region they're in, just to see where they're coming from. Yeah. And it it gives you a great sense of their um, potential bias and potential expertise, right? Exactly. And you just read it with that little grain of salt, knowing, oh, this is a Louisiana writer. So I can relate to probably most of it. And obviously, if it's an article on weeding tips, (laughs) that's going to be a lot more uh, that I could relate to than it would be to the best 10 perennials um, exactly for pollinators. Yeah, it's so funny. I have uh, a memory of going to a fantastic gardening workshop at a White Flower Farm, and they were putting in a border there based on Christopher Lloyd and Fergus Garrett's work at Great Dixter. And I remember watching the gardener uh, who was doing the demonstration, and it wasn't either Fergus or uh, Christopher Lloyd, who was still alive at that point, um, sort of chopping down a catalpa and showing how he would cut them down to the ground in the spring so that they would produce that fantastic kind of (laughs) chartreuse green big leafed effect. And he's like, because they're weed trees anyway. And and I was coming from Colorado at the time, and and you're sort of like, um, I'm sorry, but that's one of our greatest like large leaf shade trees possible in in the West <laughs> where I am, and uh, and you just chopped it down like it was a weed, you know. And yep. this it was a great epiphany for me of of the importance of just what you're saying, this regional voice and um, regional feel and and knowledge that you that you know through time and experience best of all when you look Kathy over these years of your your growing your sense of both you know having gardened in different spaces around the country having a an intimate understanding of gardening in other cultures where it's valued differently and then i think you just returned from an annual conference of the garden communicators association and a kind of you know annual roundup of what are people doing in the garden world what are they writing about what do they care about what are where's the audience how do you get them to engage all these things what do, Where do you see garden writing and the importance of it in our world right now today? I see the future of it in almost garden coaching, I want to call it, Mm -hmm. which is a a growing industry, no pun intended. Um, (laughs) Good one. um, A lot of us 
because of it's the internet age, we're going to Google. So you're going to go to a local public garden, see a beautiful pink flower, take a picture of that plant label, and then immediately Google it. And then you might read, you know, two or three blog posts about it. And you may or may not dig a little deeper into those blogs to see where those authors are coming from. So one of them could have been living in India. Another person could have written it you know, in your backyard, or another person could be from across the country. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would urge people, again, when they're looking at information on the internet, to also look where the, the writer is coming from. But then you buy it at your local garden center if it's available, and bring it home and pluck it in the ground, and then it dies the next year. And then you're upset. And then we don't want you obviously to quit gardening at that point. No. But we would hope that they would turn and then maybe find a Facebook group, say, and that they would join it and post a picture of that flower and say, what did I do wrong? And then, you know, reach out to that community. And maybe that Facebook group community is, um, say, you lived in San Francisco and it's your local San Francisco gardeners or however, you know, there's, you know, obviously prolifically hundreds of those out there, but reach out to your fellow local gardeners, um, attend a local garden club meeting and pick the brains of those veteran gardeners out there. So if they have gray or silver hair, that doesn't mean they've been gardening their whole life. Some of them are new to gardening at retirement, but many of them are fonts of wisdom because um, they've had, you know, all those seasons of growing. But I would say pairing people together and mentoring or garden coaching as a, you know, whether online or in person, I hope will be a, a trend that continues on. And people are seeking out through webinars and or in-person coaching, maybe, as I mentioned earlier, talks at local public gardens where You might have a talk on the most popular annuals to beat the summer heat. And then after you've listened to the person, stick around after that class and and get their card and ask them if they do a consultation or Mm. um, where else they write or where their recommendations are um, for your garden. Yeah. And you've kind of started to address this right here, but I think one of of uh, the great challenges for anyone who's new to gardening and or new to a place and gardening there is vetting what is good information, right? And so what for you are some of your, and, and you've started to get into this with, you know, picking the brains of your uh, known good local gardeners around you, what are some of your greatest resources for researching, for following new trends in in the gardening world, new research going on out there, whether it's ornamentals or edibles or, um, you know, soil science? What, where, where do you tend to go to inform you to the best of your ability for the work you do at Washington Gardener? Some of my information sources are directly to, say, a USDA researcher. So, for example, they're testing strawberries now for year-round harvest. Um, may, might be under a grow tunnel for part of the season, but you can still have strawberries in your backyard year-round. And being able to go and look at them, taste them myself, see that they are 
not tasting like water, but full of flavor, even in the wintertime. And <laughs> being able to report on that is wonderful. Um, I attend a lot of trade shows in the industry. So one of the big ones here in our area is Mance. Mm. M-A-N-T-S, so yep. Mid-Atlantic Nursery Trade Show. There's no education at Mance, no like workshops or keynote speaker or anything, but thousands of exhibitors and nursery tradesmen. So you're talking directly to the growers um, and breeders of plants. So if you're looking at a display of begonias, you might ask them, are they the grower of it or are any of these new introductions that they've bred? Um, so you can pick their brains and see what's coming down the road. So coming back from, um, the garden communicators meeting just yesterday in Salt Lake city, I was able to talk one-on-one with Dan Himes of Terra Nova nursery. And we sat on a bus back from a garden tour together for 45 minutes where he leaned over and said, Um, You asked me about new plant introductions. I'm about to show you a slideshow of 3,198 new plants. (laughs) And then there'll be a quiz, right? (laughs) (laughs) And and he did. He did it very quickly. Wow. (laughs) ran through. And, yeah, he was showing me some of the stunning new breeding that's coming down the road that will be at a garden center or a home store near you for – because – some of them, obviously, the begonias would be houseplants for some of the country, and some are hardy outside for the rest of the country. Yeah. So when you look at your 19 years involved, I mean, your 14 years involved in this endeavor, is the gardening world more energetic than ever, whether it's going to digital versus print? What do you what do you get a sense of in terms of the the hunger and appetite of your audience there right now? There's definitely a bigger interest, especially in the edible side of things and outside gardening. But more and more, it's shifting to houseplants as well. So in the beginning, uh, when the magazine started, we would maybe do one side column every few issues on a houseplant or or Mm -hmm. something that you could grow inside. Um, but now the, the number of questions I get for, can I grow, grow that herb indoors has exploded. I can't talk about any plant pretty much without being asked, can that grow indoors in some yeah. way? <laughs> Good to <laughs> so, know. Good to know. Yeah. And uh, usually the question, uh, you know, usually I have to say, mm, if you own a greenhouse, <laughs> if, you, if you have access for our area, um, and then... Oh, now I lost track of of my train of thought. Um, hmm. I I think you finished. Yes, go ahead. Okay. Uh, Because, yes, that, you know, can you grow it indoors? Um, You know, when you think about your audience who reads or or follows you on social media or reads the blog as well as the, the print magazine, you know, and that could be your interviews with individual gardeners, your reporting on the results of the tomato festival taste test of the year could be your plant uh, focuses, um, your plant profiles that come out. Why is this work important, Kathy? Whew, that's a tough question. (laughs) 
I would say it's my personal passion that everybody be growing something, whether it's one little African violet on a windowsill in their retirement community home um, to an acre of apple trees. So growing something green in their life and um, making that connection um, to the earth, to mother earth and the outside world. If you're not even, if you're somehow homebound or your job is keeping you inside. Um, I was speaking to one gardener um, at the Salt Lake City meeting this last week who had retired from a job in a pharmaceutical lab where she was literally sterile for eight to 10 hours a day in a lab, you know, zip up Mm -hmm. jumper Mm. with um, gloves and goggles on and not touching anything real, especially not soil um, for the majority of her waking hours and how, how much she craved uh, gardening at the end of the day and plunging her hands into the soil. Um, So it's a, um, experience a sensory experience um both touch and smell um but also visual of course i mean we love beautiful flowers but i don't think people close their eyes enough in the garden um just to experience that side of the things um and think about um their connection to the soil and i've been doing a lot of um a lot of reading lately on forest bathing and that trend um, and the research that they're doing about our connection, not just in soil and to the mycorrhizae, but the whole vibration of the earth. That if you're not barefoot, putting your bare feet on the bare ground, um, at least once in a while, um, you're losing that connection. Kathy Jens is the founder and editor of Washington Gardener, a gardening magazine and information hub for gardeners in the D.C., Maryland, Virginia, and Pennsylvania areas. You can follow her work online at D.C. Gardener. I'm looking forward to connecting with a lot of you D.C. gardeners March 18th when I'll be joining Smithsonian Gardens for a symposium about women, gardening, and diversity. For more information on tickets to the symposium, see cultivatingplace.com forward slash events. Join us again next week when we speak with another gardener writer, Marta McDowell, whose focus in life is that sweet spot in the meeting place of trowel and pen, as she describes it. Marta's freshly updated The Gardens of Emily Dickinson showcases the gardening life and love of this long-loved poet. Join us. There are so many ways people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio. Over at cultivatingplace.com this week, make sure to check out Kathy's garden photos and more about the rich information available for mid-Atlantic gardeners through the pages of Washington Gardener magazine. And while you're there, 
make sure to check out this month's A View From Here newsletter, where we chat a little about the malady of plant blindness and the deep happiness of plant awareness. It's worth a thought or two as we look toward this decade. Robin Kimmerer shared in her work that if there were schools that could take her language and culture away from her ancestors, then there must be schools that could bring it back. Likewise, if there are cultural forces that can train us to stop seeing and stop respecting plants and this cultivating place worldview, then there are cultural forces that can bring it back. And we are the gardeners to do it. Together, we grow. Our show producer and engineer is Matt Fiddler. Executive producer, Sarah Bohannon. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. In this next decade, may you ever enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.